Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different it's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course so if people are interested you can google wayfinder life coach training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way yes you will hi it's me martha and me rowan we're bewildered we're trying to figure it out at least <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. I think Marty might have figured it out a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, that's right. I did. You did? Yes. And it was all about hair buns. I, I kept should it have guessed. in my lush, natural hair buns. Mm-hmm. It was easy. Everything was figured out. That's brilliant. But, but I can't. I have no hair buns in this life. <laughs> no hair buns in this life. It's it's a tough galaxy for hair. It is. This one. Yeah. Yeah. Buns like that. So basically we're screwed and that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed Bewildered. <laughs> this will be our last episode. No, this is our first episode. Our first ever episode of all time. The Wumpth. The glorious Wumpth. The very Wumpth. The very Wumpth itself. And um, I think it bears asking at this point, since we're obviously some madcap people, why we would want to be doing a podcast at all, Muddy Moo. Well, seriously, it's because I have spent my whole entire life trying to help people with what I thought were a whole bunch of different problems that Mm -hmm. turned out to be one single problem. How nice. Yes. And that problem is being pulled away from our true nature and the specific reason we do it is because of the pressure of culture culture yes what, culture. what are you meaning exactly by culture in this context so i have a PhD in sociology oh do you darling yes, oh how fancy by the way as you listen to this podcast now and in the future every time i say the word harvard you may drink a shot I'm so, very sorry if this is a bad thing to encourage drinking games during oh, our yeah. podcast. Trigger, trigger warning, just yeah. a joke. Drink a shot of water. Yeah. You'll be bloated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, yes, I do have a PhD in sociology from Harvard. And, um, Drink. And in sociological configurations, it's any type of social pressure could be considered culture. So... Um, the, the great druggy wise guy, um, whose name I'm forgetting, is uh, Tristan. No, Terry. Ter- Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna. He, said, he said whenever there are two people in the room, culture is the third guest at the table. Because every time people 
interact. We're always looking at, at each other for social cues and we're always get, putting out social cues that we don't even know about. And so it can be just you and your best friend. It can be your whole family. It could be your religion, your ethnicity, your nation, the entire global culture. It's all putting pressure on you to decide how to behave. So if I was having coffee with my best friend, mm. um, there would be a kind of cultural force operating where I would what like or try to behave like we've always behaved together yeah or... yeah and you'd see maybe her her face would change if you went to a given topic so you'd steer away from mm. it or you'd think something was funny and she'd look at you glaringly and you would like feel crestfallen and remember not to do that again mm. all of that is cultural pressure and I guess the obvious one is is the sort of going to the family at Christmas time Ooh. you know there's a lot of cultural Ooh. cues and pressures I can't tell you there. how many people I've had to mop up <laughs> the dregs of their personalities after family holidays it's really kind of horrifying but very remunerative for a life coach <laughs> <laughs> it's great the market will never run dry there you go but yeah it's a real it's a real issue and I finally came to think that the only way out of it is a complete detachment from culture to return to our true nature. And we figure it out by going to our true nature. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, so all right, just to tease this out a little bit more, why nature? Why culture bad, nature good? Because culture doesn't know you. <laughs> ah. It just knows person. And you might as well be a robot, especially in our culture, which is very materialist. It's based on sort of factory um, models of creation. It's vast numbers. And the idea is do this, go here, say that, think this, live this long, and all will be well for the culture. And by making things right for the culture, it can push the individual nature completely off into the margins of reality where it will suffer. And I guess there's also the the sort of factor of if you have my best friend's cult and me culture, my family of origin culture, my um, my work committee's cultures, they're right. going to contradict each other at some point, right? Yeah, like you may need to discuss your strong feelings about something, but there is, a, you know, in, in your family, we don't talk about strong feelings. And in another group, someone needs you to be quiet about your strong feelings because they have differing feelings. There are all these different types of pressure that might make you. And then you go to a, your therapy group and they say, no, you must, you must speak your feelings. So there are contradictory messages coming from culture all the time. Which I imagine kind of pushes us even further away from from our, our true nature. And it can actually get us completely stuck. Like uh, it, there's something in the brain called the attention aperture. And if you get too many inputs, it all just get stuck, which is why tigers and lions can't always kill one in a herd of antelope because there's so many things coming in as input that the attention bottleneck gets stuck and they actually just stand there staring and they don't chase anything. That and, sounds like my entire life. Oh my gosh, it's every client, every other client that's come to me, thousands, literally thousands of clients now. And, and they were just like gobsmacked and stunned by the level of cultural pressure and the differences they were log jammed. Yeah. 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 No, that makes total sense. So I guess, you know, as far as what we're talking about as bewilderment, bewilderment on this show, um, the, the returning to your true nature um, is bewilderment in response to bewilderment, right? right? So we're sort of, we're proposing that you, you feel bewildered. That's a point, um, like a juncture where you can choose to come back to your true nature. As you do that, what you'll be doing is wilding yourself. Yeah. So we're talking about bewilderment as a response to the mayhem of this moment in history. Yeah. So as we keep making these podcasting episodes, we're going to talk over and over again about people who feel in some way um, conflicted, pressured, troubled, bewildered. And instead of saying, oh, don't be bewildered, here's the recipe for making it better, I guess we kind of are doing that, but we're literally <laughs> saying we don't have the answer, but your own wild nature has it. And if you can pull away from civilization, because in our culture, civilization and the wild are opposed to each other. Maybe there's a cultural setting where they don't have to be, but in ours, they are. So withdrawing from civilization into a wilder self can get you on track um, with truth. I mean, 
the things you figure out in the wild work because they work, not because people say they do. So you may get, if you take a test on making fire and you get the steps wrong in class, the teacher can tell you you're wrong. Or if you get all the steps written down correctly, the teacher will tell you you're right. That's a social pressure. If you go into the wild and you try to make fire and you make fire, it's because you're aligned with the principles of nature. You are in truth. And that is something civilization does not give us in the same way. So one of the things you'll hear us say a lot is um, that, that culture um, is a process of, of consensus. Culture wants to bring you to consensus. We all agree that this is how we behave. And what going through this bewilderment process is, is coming to your senses, coming back to the part of you that knows what to do, that knows how to navigate this moment in time, this life, you know, or these very particular sets of circumstances that you're trying to work through in your own life. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right, you can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. Yeah, so if, you're, if you find yourself obsessed with wanting everyone to agree with you, you're trying to come to consensus. If you're trying to figure out what's true, you're coming to your senses. Right. That's bewilderment. That's okay. bewilderment. So since this is our first episode, uh-huh. we thought we would tell you a little bit about our own bewilderment experiences, mm, just yes, to give shall. you a little flavor. Oh, so you can get an idea what we're talking about. Um, I was born on a snowy day. Um, actually, <laughs> Here we go. I'm going back almost that long. <laughs> it's a long time. Um, no, I was born and raised in a very religious family in Utah in I, I, I will let you guess the religion of which my family was a part, but very much a part. So until I was 17, I lived in a hotbed of Mormonism in a town with 100,000 people in one bar. And uh, all my friends were Mormon. Um, I had a couple who weren't, but they were like discriminated against. And then when I was 17, I went off, guess where? To Harvard. Drink. Where? Things are not, you may be surprised to know, not everyone is Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine you being surprised by that. Complete stunner. I I mean, seriously, people would say, somebody asked me out, do you want to go get a cup of of coffee? And I was terrified. I'd never had a cup of coffee. I didn't know how to have a cup of coffee. Coffee was a sin. People who drank coffee were sinners. I mean, and I So did you just shout, I don't do sin juice? And like, (laughs) you ran away? Oh, I, I, I hit him really hard in the face, like you're supposed to do. It's the you know? Mormon way. I literally ran away. I literally physically ran away. Oh, it's pathetic. Anyway, so then I, I was there. I got my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD. So by then I'd been living at Harvard Drink. for my entire adult life. And then I had a, a kid. And another kid who was diagnosed prenatally with Down syndrome, it was really late in the pregnancy, and though I was pro-choice, still am, um, I felt really bonded to him, and I just, I, I, I was facing the question, what kind of a child is the right kind of child to have? And the culture of Harvard said, baby with Down syndrome, no good. Not smart. No. Not smart like us. It's like having a malignant tumor. And I was like, I disagree. I've watched him suck his own finger on the ultrasound. I'm in love with him. I can't believe that he is bad. But to my culture, he was. So guess what I did? I hightailed it back to Utah, where everyone told me I'd done the right thing. Yay, I was back in culture. And then after, so I lived there, I had another kid, and after a few years, I realized I was gay. Oh! <gasps> yes, yeah, so there I was in the most Mormon town in the world, becoming a lesbian. <laughs> so I went to Harvard Dun-dun. to choose to have a child with Down syndrome, then came back to Utah to become a lesbian. 
always pushing the envelope. And made the rest of and made my career giving people advice. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So then I, I left Mormonism, which was a big to-do, and ran away and lived in Arizona for a long time. But really, where, where I lived was in the sky. I traveled constantly, and I ended up going to Africa a lot and going to wild places in Africa because I'd had so much cultural pressure in different directions that I felt um, completely confused a lot of the time. And I never felt like I was doing anything right. And the only place that felt calm to me was literally out in the natural world with animals, with no people at all. And eventually, I couldn't come back from that. So I bought a ranch in California next to a national park. And, um, and I literally lived in the woods for six years and came to my own true nature, came to my senses. And um, that's where you and I started hanging out. We and did. And we... We're all lesbians hanging we're out. We're all lesbians hanging out. And now we are in Pennsylvania. Why? Because someone said to us, hey, maybe you could move to Pennsylvania. And we went, okay. okay. Well, and that's what we did. Yeah. Because that's how we make our decisions. We just moved from one forest to another. It agreed with our true nature. It sure did. Us and our beloved Karen. And our beloved Karen. Yeah. And our beloved Adam. We do not live normal lives. We have a very abnormal family. Mm -hmm. And we are very, very happy. Hmm. Yeah. It works for us. And, and life can, can look a bit weird by the culture standards when you keep pushing that envelope of culture It feels to me nature. like I literally was given a life on purpose where everywhere I went, I would be strongly emotionally drawn to do things that would make me an absolute outcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing when you run through yeah. it like that, just how, how much you went somewhere yeah, and, and then confounded it. I didn't just leave Utah either. I, I left Utah after writing a book about um, how I left the Mormon church, which is the one thing in Mormonism that's considered worse than murder. Mm -hmm. So I didn't just leave, I left okay. with a vengeance. I didn't do it for vengeance. I left emphatically and made sure that everybody there thought I was evil. So it's like I've been maximizing cultural pressure on myself everywhere mm. I've gone in my life. And it means that I have become wilder and wilder and wilder and yeah. more and more ready to make unorthodox decisions. And that's why we're sitting here together. And I think that you have an equally interesting story. Yeah, well, mine was, I mean, it's a different kind of story when I thought about it. But, um, you know, from when I was super young, <gasps> I was born, no, I have always loved animals, much as you do, Marty. And uh, I always thought that I would, you know, I had this weird girl crush on, um, well, crush, crush, on Diane Fossey when <laughs> dead gorilla woman. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just setting up my taste in women for life. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Dead so. gorilla woman. That's the pressure that's on me right now. <laughs> so there she was being out there with the gorillas and I really, really wanted to work, do work like that. And as I got a bit older, I realized that there's this little thing you have to be able to do, or at least I assumed you did. Uh, when you want to work with animals, I just thought, oh, I'm going to have to do science. I'm going to have to make formulas and numbers. And Which things. in itself is a cultural pressure. Well, true. Yeah. I mean, Jane Goodall didn't have any special education. She just went out there with the chimps. Well, even Diane Fossey like, did all kinds of things to get out there. But, um, but anyway, this was this idea that I got in my head. And because I have a kind of, you know, I, I want to be helpful in the world is, is like one of my things. I, I thought, well, I guess animals and have to learn science i'd have to learn about animal bodies or something so i'll instead do something with people and i ended up long story short um in my mid-20s doing a master's in international politics so i was sort of um <laughs> i i had this idea and i think i'm not alone in this sometimes of i care about the people so therefore, in order to express my empathy or to fully experience my empathy, I need to know at all times just how bad life is for some people, you know, just how much suffering there is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I – and that's, you know, all – that, that's all a cultural idea as And it's well. interesting because if you'd been like, uh, say, 10,000 years ago – you would have had 135 people to take, keep track of in your mm -hmm. whole life. 
And maybe you could know all about, if you were like the, the medicine person of the tribe or whatever, maybe you could take that on. But when you were doing your master's, it was information from around the world. Yeah, I had, I had a radio station at my home in Melbourne um, that played round-the-clock international news. So it would go from the BBC World Service to CNN World or whatever it was. And I, no kidding you guys, I bought a radio for every room in the house, in the in my flat, that I could just walk around and have it at me all the time. And that was all day, every day, and for four years. So coming to the end of that time, I feel like I'd been really, really poisoned by mm. the impact of all this suffering. I mean, oh, there was so much. There was Iraq and Afghanistan going on. There were, There's always a genocide somewhere if you dig hard enough. And those, those are all human-caused. Right. I mean, there are natural disasters too, but every, the political stuff is, by definition, human-caused atrocities and suffering. Yeah. Talk about the ugly side of culture. Completely. And, you know, I feel like I had just spent four years filling this animal <laughs> of myself with so much toxic human shit you know like it was just um i I'd, I'd stifled any hope of connecting with my real self at that point it was I, I i was kind of my true self was almost obliterated by um the the gorging on suffering that i was so and doing. you really thought this was going to be helpful in some way i think i thought it was virtuous to know and that mm. people who stuck their heads in the sand like i do now um are in some way morally lacking. Mm. Yeah. There's a big red flag for mm -hmm. cultural pressure. Yeah. yeah, totally. So anyway, that that was the point. I was kind of pushed into it at that point in my life, the way that, that Marty was at many times in her life. And, and I just, you know, I did the, the whole, I threw out my TV, I filled my place with um, plants and sunshine and started so meditating. You hit a breaking point. In Absolutely. Words, and you just said enough of this and you pushed away from civilization. Completely, yeah. Uh, I mean, not completely, but yeah, to the extent that I could at that point, I, I made my home into a, a much more natural place and started digging my way back to myself, I think. And then if you fast forward <laughs> six years, here I am in the wilds of Pennsylvania. It's lovely to yeah. live by nature. Yeah, so both of us did this thing where we were in the culture, felt um, like almost to save our lives or at least our emotional lives, we had to retreat from culture. And we found in that retreat from culture a connection with our own natures that really has helped us navigate the world and feel happy. Yeah, and so that's what this podcast will focus on, is, is taking the, the little bits of bewilderment that we find in our lives and just finding lots of little ways to just come back to our senses each time. Cool. And I hope we can come to consensus on that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think we. It's we're, it's very clear to us that going from bewilderment to bewilderment is the only way that any of this makes sense, really. Yeah. So, without further ado, shall we? Let's jump in let's to a real person with a real issue. Absolutely. So, at the moment, because it's early days for us, we've just been bothering our friends with with questions about where they're feeling bewildered. And one of our friends, who we're going to call Pam for the purposes of this podcast. Not Pamster. Pam. Yeah. Pamela. Um, she is someone who I think I can describe as professionally very successful. Mm -hmm. She's got a wonderful family that she loves very much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a pretty good life to, yeah. to look at. And yet, Pam sometimes feels deeply unhappy <gasps> despite all these blessings what unimaginable i know so wrong right yeah <laughs> impossible so anyway she she tells herself a lot of stuff on these days and um it's or on these weeks whenever she she's having these down periods and a lot and you recognize the cultural stories that get told in this you know it's it's basically what right do you have not to be happy you know, I should be happy. Look at everything I have. I should be constantly grateful. Um, I know so many people who have it worse. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where she finds herself on the bad days and she can't figure it out. Yeah. 
And and before we really go into this topic more deeply, I do want to say that there's a differentiation between having a bad day or even a bad week and being depressed, like yeah. deeply sad, deeply intractably sad for a long time. That is a very real psychological condition and nobody should have to feel that way. Yeah. So just understand that we're not talking about clinical depression here. That's not the situation that our friend outlined to us. And if you feel clinically depressed, if you feel depressed, go get help, you know, go get whatever you need, therapy, medication. That's what, that's why I'm alive. So just thanks for, for listening to my little rant on that. The culture is not perfect, but it, it has its good sides and that sort of help is one of them. Yes, it certainly does. I know one anthropologist who says that she believes that um, humans evolve to be depressed because it makes depression makes women more compliant and it makes men more aggressive. And she believes that that leads to a lot of babies. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, it's an evolutionary advantage. But when there are billions of us overpopulating the planet, it's no longer necessary to stay depressed for reasons of reproduction. <laughs> so get yourself some medication to overcome your evolution because depression is not fun. Now, anyway, okay. moving on. All right. So um, Pam's bewildered because she doesn't understand why um, she's unhappy when she's also, you know, so so blessed, too blessed to be stressed. So Marty, you know, like the first thing I feel like we need to dig into is what's the cultural pressure in in what Pam's experiencing? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, I, I said before, we have a very materialistic culture and it's really based on if you have enough stuff, you will be happy. If you have a certain um, very rigid sort of drama playing out in which you have your one true love, that's very central to American culture. If you have a certain amount of money, if you have a certain kind of high status job, if you have beautiful children that behave just so, if you have the right shoes and you don't wear white after Labor Day, you will be happy. <laughs> right? And so people chase that. And so many people come to life coaches like me going, you've got to get me the right pair of shoes. And I, when I was starting out, I would say, okay, let's set up goals and make it happen and get you the pair of shoes you want. And we'd do that. And then they'd say, I'm not happy. Yeah, spoiler alert. It was never the pair of shoes. It was never the shoes. And it got to the point, it really got ridiculous. I mean, I got to the point where I was working with very wealthy, very successful people, like world famous billionaire people. And I remember one guy calling me from a party and he'd made $400 million the day before when his company went public. And there was this band playing, I can't remember what one, but a famous band, and it was like deafening, and he was screaming at me into the phone at two in the morning, drunk as a lord. It's not enough. When is it effing going to be enough? Yeah, because I think that's perfect because we're, what, we're, what we're sold is that there's an equation there. If X, then Y. If you you build up a life that looks right, right, it will follow that you will feel right. Yeah. And and so I think there's this natural human desire to uh, assume that something's missing um, and what's if, if that formula hasn't worked, it's yeah. like, oh, I mustn't have enough of the material stuff to, yeah. you know, to, to equate the happiness that I want. And so I'll just add more. Keep getting more. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just material stuff. It's what... Um, Early sociologists said that in our, in Western culture, um, well, in all culture, power, wealth, and status are the three things. So wealth is just material stuff. And then there's power and status. And some people actually want power more than they want stuff. And they want, they want to be able to push people around. Some people just want status, like narcissistic people. They can't get enough of people screaming their praises. Like they need crowds to scream their praises. And they can get, and I've worked with people like that too, who are really, really world famous and cannot get enough. Mm. And they just become like these kinds of dragons. Um, but that's at the very top. Down at the level where most of us live, we just think, oh, if I had that, I'd be happy. Mm. And trust me the people who have that are not necessarily happy no but, but it's it's a very pernicious kind of story that that we're, we're bred into from what do you want to be when yeah. you grow up what's your life going to look like when you are perfect exactly <laughs> how, how what's your brand of perfect life exactly and it's always culturally influenced and then we do it we we make it happen as best we can or we get bits of it so we think yeah hey, i have i have more than I deserve to be humble. And then we start to 
attack ourselves because we've answered society's equation and it's not working. Mm. The true nature is not doing what the culture said it would do. Right. But instead of saying, oh, culture must be wrong, we say we're wrong. Exactly. So we say things to ourselves like, how dare you be sad? How dare you complain? I remember hearing one famous person shout while she was giving a speech, you don't have the right to be tired. And I thought, she's talking to herself. She's exhausted up there. And she's yelling that because that's the cultural message. Yeah, and there's even like smaller ones that have the same impact, like just keep your chin up. Why don't you smile more? Oh, and that can be, somebody used to always tell me, buck up, buck up. And it's like, I would, I literally would have just like lost someone to death and they'd be like, well, buck up. (laughs) No, I don't want to buck up. Um, So even that can feel like, like a whip hitting you somebody saying keep your job keep that you know turn that frown upside down have a positive attitude there's the whole you're not pleasant for us when you're not feeling good so feel good so we all can feel good if you don't have anything pleasant to say don't say anything at all yeah that can feed into it yeah there's the lunatic fringe don't manifest badness by feeling (laughs) bad that you'll just manifest more badness Think of good things, and you will not manifest bad things. Yeah, <laughs> I think the you know the one that really resonates for me that Pam mentioned is um, the one of of where you start comparing yourself to other people. Mm, where yeah. you say you know you you can't complain because you know Linda down the street has the same situation but this much worse in all these ways. Or when you were listening to your genocide things, it's like how can I feel yeah. bad because I have like. I have a dentist appointment mm. when there are people being like tortured to death in other oh, parts of the world. I hadn't put it together that that was what's going on. Oh, yeah, but it was like, oh, that's exactly what was going on. Along with, I have to understand their suffering. There's also in that particular sort of um, self-sacrificing way of thinking, which is yeah. a cultural, it's an aspect of culture. It's not only I have to feel their suffering, but I can't be happier than they are or it's not fair. That is so true. Oh, that one just about killed me. It literally just about killed me. I think I think because you get down to the most miserable humans can be, and you feel like you you don't deserve to feel better than that. Yeah, really, suicide starts to look interesting <laughs> at that point. Um, but it, it's not, guys. It is not. It is a cultural burden that you should not be carrying. And then there's, um, you know, speaking of sociology, there was this whole thing in Europe. Um, when modern society as we know it was getting started where people believed that the way you showed that you were favored by God was that you were always happy. So it's it's the kind of look happy Jesus is coming sort of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to like it if you have that nasty expression on Jesus your face. Jesus will be really mad if you're not smiling wide enough. Jesus, oh yeah, boy oh boy. Have I gone there? (laughs) Oh, Oh, I'm sure our listeners will hear so much more about that. (laughs) So our friend Pam ends up all in a knot because not only is she feeling sad for reasons she has not examined, she's also dumping cultural pressure on herself because she doesn't feel good, which makes her feel worse. So it's a self-reinforcing vicious cycle. And and it's part of the culture, but you know, what What we're saying is the culture can't solve the culture's own problems. So um, we need to, like, look at, well, so, all right, first of all, why can't culture solve the problem? Well, you know, we both know people, I will name no names, who, when they feel bad, they immediately go looking for someone who will give them permission to have a problem, give them permission to solve the problem, give them permission to feel better, give them permission. They're looking for cultural affirmation that Mm. says here's how to do things we will love you and approve of you and you'll get socially conditioned to be happy because when you're small and compliant as all of us are when we're children and usually even when we're grown up the culture functions by creating group norms and everyone has to follow them if you look at the culture as the organism the culture needs everyone to agree with it and in theory, the idea is in, in the sort of equalizing culture, everybody will just automatically think the same things. 
And I remember studying many, many years worth of documents about different utopian movements, going everything from small cults to societies to communism, where everybody, these intelligentsia would say, well, everybody automatically wants good things. So let's set this up so everybody has a voice. And then they do it. And guess what? Some people don't behave the way they like it. You're kidding me. So the intelligentsia me. say, oh, well, clearly they're not smart enough to get it. So we will just impose the right cultural attitudes that will make everyone happy. Oi, oi, oi. I remember when Karen and I were both professors when we met. And Karen was a social work professor. And we had this conversation where she on I had just come out of studying communist China. And I'd been there and I'd been like taken in all these stories of 30 million people starving to death because the communists wanted to make everybody happy. And I think they really did. Mm. But um, Karen was like, you know, we should just have a pool where everyone puts in money. And then if you need it, you go get it. And that's that would solve everything. And I was From like... From each according to his ability <laughs> to yes. each according to his need. I said, Karen, don't you think there's the potential for fraud in that system? <laughs> and she was like, oh, no one would do that. Bless her. Certainly no one, because it would be bad for everyone if some people took more than others. <laughs> she was like a classic little budding communist. Actually, she didn't even know it. it's kind of an interesting point, not to go off topic too far, but... Um, you know, what Karen was doing there was projecting onto everyone mm -hmm. how she herself is. And it strikes me as killing 30 million people in the um, service of making them happy yeah. is the same thing. I know what makes me happy, which is not even necessarily true, but I'm going to impose my worldview of happiness onto tens yeah. of millions and hundreds of millions of people. And that's what Karen was doing as well, is, is she has a very, very kind heart. And so she was projecting her own idea of what people will do en masse right. based only on her own self. And that's what we're saying. That's why it we're never, saying culture is works. problematic. <laughs> the cultures that have existed so far. I mean, I saw this when I was Mormon and I was I, just before I left the church and um, I was teaching at the Mormon run university, BYU, and they would pipe speeches into our offices that were, <laughs> and they would disable the control so you couldn't turn it down. That's actually super communist. <laughs> and I, I know, and I remember hearing one guy who would go on to be prophet of the Mormon Church saying, "Of course, we trust the faculty at BYU. We just need to make absolutely sure that trust is warranted." <laughs> and I was just like, "This is exactly like communism. It's not." I'm not saying communist bad, capitalist good or anything. Um, I'm just saying it always goes wonky because people decide that the culture is the way, is a manifestation of themselves, their own egos, and then they decide to take over and force other people to be like them. And that is pretty much how every culture on earth has played out. And um, it doesn't lead to happiness. So we kind of need to look at something other than smart people figuring it out and forcing it on society. So, yeah. and you always say, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, right? Yeah, that's Audre Lorde um, said that. And I, it's, it's something I think about a lot because, you know, it's, it's similar to that, the, the thing you often say um, that Einstein said. I'm not just you. Many people say Einstein said it. You probably even said <laughs> it. Probably even said it. <laughs> I haven't even done seen him. Um, do you know what I, I got mean? bubbles up me whoopsie daisies is that it? <laughs> Famous said, quotes from Einstein. He said, um, a problem cannot be solved from within, within the, the system of logic that created it. Yeah. Right. And it's, this is basically the same thing, that if you're trying to dismantle something using the products of that thing, can, can't dismantle it, that you need to come from a completely different place in order to, to do that. So, you know, I feel like... This this problem of PAMs is is very much the kind of problem that we see as as cultural pressure, where it's if we try to solve it within the culture, it's going to self perpetuate and it's going to get yeah. like that millionaire screaming, "When will it be enough?" or whatever. Yeah. Um. So it's it's definitely like a classic invitation to look at the situation through a different lens, right. you know. And so, what what do we tell PAM to do here? So, here's how I see it, and that's. You know, it's it's. I'm saying an, a different lens because it's it's really a reframe to me. It's not a take action. It's mm. look at you're having um, a day. You're feeling really sad. You don't know why. Uh, you know, Pema Chodron says 
you are the sky, everything else is just the weather. And oh, I love that. And and so so there's our friend Pam and she's she's the sky with a bad day rolling over her, rolling mm. through her and there's something very beautiful about that. Like imagine a big storm in that sky you know how it feels after a storm like if you walk on the beach or just go outside after a storm there's a particular freshness in the air and we don't blame the storm (laughs) you know we don't blame the storm so I, I, I would be encouraging Pam to in the very first instance to look at these sad days as as being as perfect as as the weather is and as um without blame so, and I'm right with you here, but I, I also hear my earlier self going, but sadness feels bad. It's not, you know, a storm may be beautiful, but sadness isn't beautiful. And I used to believe that, that if it was negative, if it felt painful, I had to push it away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I love what you're saying, because as I went into the wild more, I did experience um, feelings that had I had defined as negative because they were painful. But it was weird when I was away from culture and it just moved through. It's almost as if you can ask part of yourself that disapproves of that to stand aside and look at it without judgment and without language and just be in the storm. As the sky. As the sky. The sky that is actually blue. Yeah, which can never be harmed. And from the position of something that has no judgments and can never be harmed, even real pain can become awe-inspiring and beautiful and and clearly meaningful. I'm not saying you're going to enjoy it, but there's depth and there's meaning and there's fulfillment and there's something clean in that. I've always been weird. (laughs) When I write and speak professionally, I have to tone it down, especially the part where I believe the universe loves us and is on our side. A few years ago, I decided to just show up online and say what I really think. This became The Gathering Pod, a series of discussions about how to thrive in a difficult world. So if you need hope, inspiration, or a chance to listen to someone much weirder than you could ever be, come join me on The Gathering Pot. Yeah, and and something that is so much more natural than the idea of the Stepford smiling, you know, person stepping out every morning. But you're dealing with very, very strong cultural learning. I mean, going down to, uh, all the way right down to when you cry in your, on your first day in your little bassinet when you're brought home from the hospital and you start to cry and your mother or your father or another caregiver feels anxious because you're sad. You learn to be anxious because you're sad. Right, Which is yeah. not being the sky, it's being a human. It's mm. being a social primate. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what we do. Yeah, so you're talking about going to a place that's very deeply wild. It's yeah. before your first day of life where you're already getting influenced to push away things that aren't necessarily enjoyable. Yeah, but I do believe that you can as as you sort of cycle back away from the culture in even in these moments. I've had plenty of times when I've been really sad and felt it as as a kind of beautiful experience yeah. like puts I, I have this like sad woman music that I put on <laughs> and I like stand by a window and look out and and <laughs> there's like all these really sad songs that no, I've got it's... in a playlist in my mind that I can play and I can feel the sadness look out the window at the rain and the futility of it all and 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 it does feel meaningful yeah and we're not going into other emotions. We want to really focus on what Pam is going through. Um, but you can see other emotions like anger the same way. If you if you watch them without judgment and you don't immediately take action interacting with other people, anger can be an amazing teacher. Um, and it can be an awe-inspiring sight, like a volcano exploding. Um, fear can be, Gavin De Becker describes it as being a very clear, clean, calm motivation to act if you take judgment away from it. So all emotions that we socially call negative can actually, they just are in nature. Right, right. And it's, and I think this could be 
uh, like a new concept to some people. So I just want to say first, you know, that, that that reframe is something that it'll take time to practice. But I was also thinking that, Marty, that you might have an exercise that could kind of prompt them into, That's prompt our beautiful do. listeners into That's, that place. That is what I do. Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of you guys who are out there, um, knowing that you've been given much by the world, the very fact that you're listening to a podcast means that you've been given more than many, you know, starving people in, a, in various parts of the world. Um, and you probably also have bad days. And it may be that you fight against those bad days and beat yourself over the head with cultural stories about how you're wrong to have them. So I want to do a little thought exercise with you. I'm very big on thought exercises. If you can find a place where you're relatively calm, like if you're walking through a mall right now listening to this, it may not be as easy, but you can still do it, even if you're driving a car or whatever. But if you can get by yourself so much, the better. So the first thing to do is detach yourself from the people around you, whether it's a crowd of strangers or whether it's your family, um, your partner, go in the bathroom for 10 minutes, go outside for a half hour walk, get by yourself. And this is something that we'll say over and over and over because one of the biggest things that you have to do to start sort of detoxing from culture is be okay with yourself. Go alone somewhere. It's almost impossible to get out of really entrenched cultural models when you're with other people. So get by yourself and get uh, forget other people for right now. Like for 10 minutes, they don't matter at all. It's just you. And that doesn't mean you're going to do anything bad. You're just going to sit here and think for 10 minutes. But other people don't exist right now. Okay? So now... Think of something that would be nice to love. For example, it might be really nice if you loved um, rain, if you live in a rainy area, or um, if you loved, for example, exercise. If you're somebody who resists exercise, think of something that you believe you should love and then try to force yourself to love it. It might be a person, you know, somebody who loves you, but you don't love them. Have you ever tried this? Try to force yourself to be okay with that relationship the way it is. Really, not just to tolerate it, but to really be in it. Like it's the best. Something that you don't love, try to force yourself to love it. Feel the sensation of that pressure inside your body and your psyche. That's step one. Step two is this, shake all, all the trying out, shake out any judgment, and just start to notice what emotions you're feeling right now. And especially notice anything that might be a little bit uncomfortable. So say you're tired. Say to yourself, you have permission to be as big as, as tired as you want. The tiredness can be as big as it needs to be. Let it get bigger. Maybe you'll find a trace of sadness in there. Say, hello, guess what? I have so much room for you. You get to be exactly as big as you are. So spread out, relax, be sad. Tell me everything. Put on the sad songs. There's lots of time and lots of space for you. And do that with any other emotion. You're angry? Okay, let it rip. There's lots of room in here for you. You can't possibly exhaust my permission for you to exist. I accept you as you are. And encourage it to get bigger. Now notice, not the feeling itself, but the spaciousness of giving it permission. And how the part of you that's giving permission is not trapped inside it. It's not the same size and shape as the emotion. And this is what Ro was saying about becoming the sky. When you give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling, you become like the sky. And everything else is just weather. But as long as you resist the weather, you're caught in it. And you will always lose 100% of the time. So then just notice that, come back into your regular life, and you're not going to be able to sustain that. You can't, like, talk to your 
very repressive parents and feel all your anger at the same moment and, and make sense of it. You're going to blow up or go, become silent or something. That's okay. You don't have to figure all this out in real time. You have to take moments of wildness and you have to start tracing your way back to your true self, to your true nature. And that will always be peace. So keep listening as we go forth with this podcast and we'll be presenting lots of different ways that you can come back to your nature, come back to your own wildness at many times in your life. And in the meantime, we will bid you adieu. Yes. And Pam, be happy to be sad. Happy to be sad. (laughs) Hashtag. (laughs) Hashtag that makes no sense whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag stay wild, everybody, and we'll see you later. Stay wild. See you next time. Are you enjoying these shenanigans? We can notify you when a new Bewildered episode comes out. Just text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. You can also follow Martha on the socials for all kinds of ways to improve your life. On Instagram, she's Beck. On Facebook, the Martha Beck, or on Twitter, plain old Martha Beck. Her website is MarthaBeck.com. You can also follow me, Rowan Mangan, for all kinds of stuff on the writing life, wordsmithing, and honestly, general nonsense. My website is RowanMangan.com. Find me on Insta, Rowan underscore Mangan. On Facebook, I'm Rowan Mangan Writer, and on Twitter, I'm Rowan Mangan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think And the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.